Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. My name is David Azurad. I'm the director of the Simon Center for Principles and Politics and the AWC Family Foundation Fellow. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Heritage Foundation for the second of our two annual Russell Kirk Lectures. I'm old enough to remember a time when we on the right denounced the left for its relativism. This was in the 80s and 90s and postmodernism and multiculturalism were all the rage on our college campuses. Truth, we were told back then, was a construct and not something that could be known. Such insouciant relativism, morally corrosive as it was, at least implied a certain tolerance, if we can call it that. But relativism is not a tenable position. Its inescapable practical consequence, as Leo Strauss once wrote, is fanatical obscurantism. And so, multiculturalism gave way to identity politics. And today, liberals are most emphatically not relativists. They have many firm, unshakable convictions. They hold it to be a self-evident truth, for example, that all victimized identity groups must be equally represented in all realms of life. And they're therefore always on the lookout for disparities and outcomes, unless of course they benefit an oppressed group, in which case no one cares about them. I'm still waiting to hear, uh, to read a story about the fact that there are too many Jewish dentists in America. <laughs> Liberals also affirm, pardon me, affirm, that these disparities constitute in and of themselves incontrovertible evidence that there's continued discrimination in America. They categorically deny that these disparities may have anything to do with differences between these identity groups, or heaven forbid, that individuals may bear any responsibility for them. That would be blaming the victim, which you are most emphatically not permitted to do. Our identitarians, you see, not only affirm this egalitarian creed, they categorically forbid anyone from questioning it and they mercilessly punish those who have the temerity to do so. Amy Wax is one of the heretics in their crosshairs. She is one of the most formidable voices in the public square, pushing back against the intellectual tyranny of identity politics. From her perch as the Robert Mundheim Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania's Law School, she boldly defends intellectual inquiry. She possesses the two great virtues that are necessary to stand up to the illiberalism of our age. Virtues, I hasten to add, that are rarely found in the same person. She has a razor sharp mind and she's fearless. We all know of intellectuals who have the best arguments but are afraid to make them. And we all know of others who are brimming with courage but don't have the chops to win an argument. Amy's the real deal. She does not shy from raising some of the most contentious and important questions confronting the country, whether it be race relations, the status of the state of the family, or freedom of speech, for example. She thinks them through carefully, she makes her case persuasively, and then she doesn't back down when the ensuing volcano of indignation erupts. Please join me in welcoming Amy Wax. Well, I did a little podcast this afternoon entitled Problematic Women, so I guess I'm one of those. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me to speak here today on the topic of the perilous quest for equality of results. 
I'm going to begin with a brief account of my recent experiences at Penn Law School, where I teach, and then try to draw some broader lessons from that experience for the future of free expression, the academy, and society, and I will try to be brief because I know that Q&A is the best part. My strange saga began on August 9th of last year when I published a seemingly innocuous op-ed with San Diego law professor Larry Alexander in the Philadelphia Inquirer, my local paper, entitled Paying the Price for the Breakdown of the Country's Bourgeois Culture. And I have paid the price for praising bourgeois culture. The piece listed some of the ills currently afflicting American society and suggested that a renewed embrace of so-called bourgeois values, a revival of that well-worn cultural script for mature adulthood that prevailed before the 60s, might help relieve some of our problems. In what became perhaps the most controversial passage, we pointed out that all cultures are not equal. Some are more successful in preparing people for modern technological societies. And in an interview the next day about our op-ed in my school newspaper, The Daily Pennsylvanian, I defended the assertion that some cultures are better, functionally superior was the term I used, by pointing to how people vote with their feet. I noted that global migrants flock to white European countries and don't risk their lives in rickety boats to go to Venezuela or Zimbabwe. Our piece and some of these statements, selected for maximum effect, evoked immediate reactions from the media, the public, and in academia. Groups at Penn and elsewhere labeled me a racist, bigot, white supremacist, xenophobe, hater, that familiar list and litany of accusatory terms. We all know them. Some colleagues immediately published a piece criticizing our praise of the 1950s in our op-ed on the grounds that the shortcomings of that era, which we openly acknowledged, rendered the whole period irredeemably evil. An argument so bad that it is embarrassing, but at least it was an argument. Not long after, 33 of my colleagues, law professors, signed a so-called open letter in the school newspaper that condemned and, quote, categorically rejected all my views. The letter contained no explanation, no reasons, no argument. It didn't even specify the views that were being rejected. After a storm of online criticism of the letter, which was very heartening, one month later, the main instigator posted a rambling 15,000-word refutation of our little 800-word op-ed on a website called Heterodox Academy, arguing in effect, and uh, to the extent I can discern the argument, that bourgeois values are worthless and make no difference. In responding to him, I noted the data that behavior does matter, and I cited the well-known uh, Isabel Sawhill piece about how when people graduate from high school, work, and marry before having children, they're much less likely to be poor, and I would add, obeying the law. And then I asked him a hypothetical, and of course, we know that lawyers deal in hypotheticals. I said, would you rather live in a neighborhood where most people abide by the list of bourgeois values or most don't? He categorically refused to answer. I don't do hypotheticals, he said. I am sure that our Chief Justice would find that interesting. Don't dare to say that in a Supreme Court argument, and I can speak from experience here. Yet despite his argument or his evasion, he never explained why it was necessary to gang up and publicly condemn me before engaging the issues. Shortly thereafter, one colleague told me angrily that the hurt and damage that I inflicted on Penn Law by my op-ed had ruined his summer. This was <laughs> September. Another said the open letter was necessary to, quote, get my attention, so I wouldn't ever write anything like that anymore. In other words, shut up. These were not responses friendly to dissent, to say the least. This was the language used against an enemy, not a colleague. 
And last December, my own dean asked me to take a leave next year, that is this year, to stop teaching a mandatory course, citing pressure to banish me from Penn Law and his hope that if I went away, people would forget about me. I refused. And when I reported our conversation in a Wall Street Journal piece last February, he publicly denied he had asked me to leave for the reasons stated. Dear listener, I assure you he had. <laughs> and then he sent me an irate email from his iPhone stating, you're a liar, Amy. These events show how key rules of the road for academic discourse, rules like engaging in civil debate, giving reason justifications for positions, not calling names or using slurs, and being honest and forthright, were routinely violated by my institution as they increasingly are at other universities, and of course, all in a good cause, advancing the progressive agenda by any means necessary. And notice here I am talking about academic discourse and not the First Amendment, which limits only public and not private institutions. That's an important point that is often forgotten. The public-private distinction is a key one in our system because it helps to cabin the government's power to control our lives. But what this means is that technically private institutions can censor all they want. I argue, though, as elaborated momentarily, that they shouldn't, that they should give the widest possible ambit to dissent because that is essential to their educational mission and to the integrity of our democracy. Now, who is responsible for this situation? The growing hostility on campus to dissenting voices, and I can assure you that hostility is growing by leaps and bounds. Well, the answer is, with few exceptions, the progressive left, which overwhelmingly dominates the academy today. Increasingly, power and politics determine who gets to speak and what they get to say. In today's climate, universities are less and less sites of free and fearless inquiry, they are sites of orthodoxy, mercilessly enforced, as David Azarad suggested. Jonathan Haidt on the Heterodox Academy website, writing in response to my colleague's condemnation of me, puts it well. He says, every open letter you sign to condemn a colleague for his or her words brings us closer to a world in which academic disagreements are resolved by social force and political power not by argumentation and persuasion. And we are approaching that world today. Which brings me to the denouement of my story and some lessons I want to draw that are relevant to the title of my talk. Sometime after my op-ed was published, student activists in the Black Law Students Association at Penn Law in looking for dirt on me, unearthed and then complained to the dean about a Blogging Heads podcast I had done seven months previously at the invitation of Brown University economist Glenn Lowry, who himself happens to be African-American. During the podcast, we discussed many matters, and I made the point that racism was an implausible explanation for some of the disparities observed between minorities and other law students at top law schools, for example, in obtaining prestigious clerkships. Rather, student performance, student grades were a better explanation. Glenn Lowry introduced the topic of affirmative action. I then said, and these were the words objected to, that I could not recall any black law students at Penn Law in the past several years graduating at the very top of the class and that there weren't very many in the top half of my own civil procedure class. I think I said a handful. In saying this, in fact, I was drawing on my own teaching, but also my years on the clerkship committee where I saw class rank, which is ordinarily a closely guarded secret. I went on to speculate that affirmative action sometimes places minority students in settings where they are overmatched, and this can prove an uphill battle for them. But once unearthed, 
My observations about student performance went viral, resulting in the usual social media blitz and a campaign to remove me from teaching first-year classes. The dean took only a few days to acquiesce to that demand. He announced it to the entire Penn community in a lengthy email. It is instructive to contemplate what that message said. He claimed that my assertions were inaccurate, that they were false. But in a typical catch-22, he offered no data to back it up and stated, in fact, that the school never collected information by race, that, in fact, the school had no information. He said I had violated confidentiality but cited no legal authority for this. Most tellingly for our purposes, he speculated that black students assigned to my classes, quote, may reasonably wonder whether their professor has come to conclusions about their performance and potential and may question whether the inaccurate and belittling statements she made will adversely affect their learning environment. The key assertion here is that the, quote, belittling statements I made, which the dean insisted were inaccurate, would adversely affect their learning. It is worth asking, what does that mean? How do we gauge such effects? Can we examine this objectively? Do minority students in my class earn lower grades than in other first-year classes? The claim that I actually penalize them overtly is a non-starter. We have blind grading at Penn Law School. Maybe he means my presence impedes their learning, but then they should do worse in my class than in other classes. And that's something that can be investigated and measured. But I predict, and my prediction came true, that there was no effort to measure it. Why? Because facts are beside the point. The beauty of the dean's allegations about me is that the facts don't matter. What matters are perceptions and feelings. Professors who hold unpopular positions or state inconvenient facts are now considered psychologically toxic. If their presence causes offense, distress, feelings of insult, fears of ill treatment, that is enough to eject them from the classroom. And of course, these perceptions and feelings are subjective. They are self-confirming. They are immune from challenge. It's all in the mind of the beholder, and the beholder's mind reigns supreme. Now, what is wrong with this? As Glenn Lowry eloquently pointed out in criticizing the dean's actions, allowing student discomfort to determine whether a teacher gets to teach amounts to a weapon of mass destruction, a clever all-purpose device for penalizing professors who hold unorthodox views or discuss distressing realities. And we know that the scenarios are endless. Objections based on hurt, discomfort, disparagement can be concocted out of a host of observations or positions that are unpopular. A professor supports Trump. That'll do it. He or she believes that women are on average less interested in science than men. That would definitely do it. Or that illegals should be deported. Or anything else that affronts the progressive worldview is by definition psychologically harmful, offensive, and affronts the individuals who are being taught. This brings me to the topic of the quest for equality of results, which I believe is grievously eroding academic values and academic freedom today. And David Azarad touched on this in his introduction. I submit that the aggressive, dogmatic pursuit of equality, defined as equality of outcomes and group outcomes, that is what we are talking about here, has become an unassailable item of faith in the academy today. This is central to the obsession with identity, diversity, and inclusion that now pervades our university and has seeped out into society as a whole. It threatens the core of the academic enterprise, which is the disinterested search for truth, 
by casting a pall of orthodoxy on speech and thought in many areas culturally dominated by left-leaning elites, the media, the workplace, the professions, big business, the entertainment industry, and of course, the university. That quest necessarily results in noble lies, in twisting, hiding, and distorting reality, and in the need to punish those who point to and discuss inconvenient facts and ideas, which is that in a meritocracy, assuming we want one and can keep it, group results will not always be equal. As David Azarad has observed, in the service of equal results, all right-thinking people must, quote, denounce the mistreatment of designated groups at the hands of an unjust society and praise their accomplishments, whether real or fake, genuine or fabricated. Those who venture beyond that safe space do so at their peril. And of course, the accuracy of those words is reflected in the response to my statements, to my observations about bourgeois values, cultural differences, and student performance, as well as the downsides of affirmative action. In the university today, ideas about group differences and observations about possible sources of those differences must either be suppressed and denied, or in the alternative, they must fit a dominant narrative. And once again, David touched on that narrative. Ours is an irredeemably racist and sexist society, and all group disparities flow from discrimination. Correct thinking on racial preferences is even more Baroque and self-contradictory. All good people accept that affirmative action is necessary and is a positive good for society. But the academic gaps that make it necessary, although sometimes glaringly obvious and having many consequences, may not be mentioned in polite society, or are illusory, or are the product of racism, and above all, are amenable to instant correction through the offices of racial preferences or through services and programs without end. Indeed, central to the practice of affirmative action is a tenacious myth, what I have elsewhere called the central myth of affirmative action. Once beneficiaries arrive at their institutions of higher learning, they will instantly catch up. Group differences will disappear. And any suggestion that the myth is just that, that performance gaps often persist, is reconfigured as an attack on minority students themselves, an assertion of their inferiority or that they don't belong here, or that a professor thinks less of them. These are all charges leveled at me. And of course, such disparagements cause hurt, offense, and trauma. That is the psychologization. Have I said that right? It is turning into a psychological issue what ought to be an issue of policy. In the climate that prevails in the university as well as workplaces, this set of rhetorical moves amounts to the position that affirmative action can never be assessed or questioned. It is untouchable. And the evasions that surround affirmative action are part of a broader pattern that has taken over on many fronts, that unequal outcomes must either be ignored and denied or ascribed to racism. And we have a whole list here, not just academic performance differences, but rates of school discipline, wealth, home ownership, credit and lending, the list goes on. These can never be attributed to anything victims do or choose, not to any behavior, choice, or performance. Rather, they are due to nefarious outside choice, uh, outside forces. Which brings us back to affirmative action and how we are allowed to talk about it. The irony here is that like a good conservative, and here this echoes to the Harvard case that is going on presently, I think that private institutions should be able to adopt any admission policy they want and let the chips fall where they may. 
But the problem is that the chips are never allowed to fall. The hopes for group equality that grow out of policies like affirmative action don't stop at the schoolhouse door. They feed into these elaborate taboos, charades, and untruths that pervade society and affect what we can think, say, and notice. And when the promised equal outcomes don't occur, then resentment, disappointment, and recrimination ensue. Someone must be blamed, and that someone is many of us. And we can't defend ourselves to pointing to other causes for unequal outcome. Different choices, norm changes, differences in behavior, and differences in talent. Well, what that means is that we are required to tell untruths on pain of social death and ostracism. That regime is humiliating and unfair, and it does affect our politics. I don't want to mention the name of our fearless leader, but I think a lot of what is going on in our society, the way that people vote, the divides that we now see, are due to this tremendous social pressure to be politically correct. Now, what are the implications of what I've said for those of us involved in education, in academic institutions? Right now, we are dwelling in a climate of orthodoxy, fear, and intimidation. And I don't exaggerate here. Students, faculty, alumni, and donors do not feel free to dissent from approved opinions. And of course, that's exactly how progressives want it. They want it to be that way. I do really believe that. Orthodoxy is especially potent among students who are there in constant fear of being called out for sexism, racism, xenophobia, and the entire litany by other students. They're under tremendous pressure not to say the wrong thing, utter the wrong opinions, or associate with anyone who does. And that, of course, leads to deplatforming. And I have been deplatformed in a number of presentations at Penn, at Princeton. Uh, I could go into details. Uh, take my word for it. Uh, I won't bore you with it. Now, how do the members of the academy control the discourse? I've already hinted at the main ploy. Students have learned to traffic in the parlance of the grievance culture the 800-pound gorilla of a heckler's veto, that rhetoric I have detailed to you of feelings, of upset, of hurt, insult, and offense, of psychological trauma, of the inability to function in an environment that is made unsafe by dissenting views. And all this has worked brilliantly in silencing people whose opinions don't line up with the dominant ideas in the academy. And of course, the ploy is powerful because it is irrefutable and unanswerable. Feelings can't be argued with. And then they know that the authorities will back them up. Right? Indeed, I am regularly struck by the refusal of those in authority at universities to rebuke or remonstrate with students who interfere with others' expressions who call fellow students' names or disrupt events. It rarely ever happens. And it's even worse. Universities are now burgeoning with administrators, diversity bureaucrats, who stand ready to monitor attitudes, receive complaints, and guard sensitivities. They are everywhere in their quest to protect victims, they police vocabulary, including pronouns. I'm told I have to learn this whole litany of pronouns. Identify dog whistles and tell us which terms are code for forbidden crime think. And there are so many rules. Nostalgia for the 1950s is hate speech. Praising Western civilization is white supremacy. And just observing what happens in your own classroom is the way to get yourself ostracized in the academy. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, victim groups, historic, self-defining, growing in number, have been given virtually absolute veto power over what can be said in our universities and even who will be allowed to teach. 
And there is this odd combination of truculent bullying and sensitivity and fragility that goes together with these victim groups. It is really a sight to be seen. And of course, the suppression of expression and dissent has baleful effects on the students themselves. And here I am really speaking about my experience at law schools. It undermines their ability to cope with untowards ideas and facts and arguments and discourages the resilience and strength they need in the real world and in the practice of law. Students who complain about being offended both promote and advertise their own psychological weakness. I know professors who teach criminal law who get complaints growing numbers about the horrible facts and cases that they're exposing students to. As one of my colleagues says, criminal law is not about people being nice to each other. <laughs> In the same vein, I recall the story of MIT scientist Nancy Hopkins, this is a while ago, who confessed that she almost fainted and lost lunch and had to flee the room when Larry Summers suggested that men's and women's abilities might differ, a proposition for the which there's actually some evidence. As a woman, I cringe not at Summers' suggestion, but at the story of Nancy Hopkins, because it feeds into every cliche about women's mental weakness, their emotionality, their inability to deal objectively with challenging ideas. And think about the women at Google who complained that the mere presence of James Damore, author of the infamous memo about gender differences in STEM fields, crippled their very capacity to perform on the job. Cringeworthy. We come back to our law students, members of victim groups who say they need protection. They got it at Penn, but their victory is a pyrrhic one. I find myself asking, are such people fit to lead to take responsibility, to exercise power in a demanding and competitive society that will often disappoint them and fall short of the ideal. And I have to conclude that they are not fit. Yet we continue to infantilize our students by giving in to their untutored demands. This is not education, it is capitulation. Now, I want to end by asking what the present situation implies more broadly for the future of our universities. Of course, there are growing numbers of topics which in, in, on which only a narrow range of opinion is heard. We know that. And more and more, the universities themselves are taking positions. I once asked my librarian to count the number of edicts and fatwas and new cases that had come out of our university president's office about Trump's immigration policies. <laughs> There's basically one every week, okay? And they are all opposed. So what should be done about this? Let me briefly throw out a few pie-in-the-sky suggestions. First, this sounds simple, but we have to remind students that one of the central missions of the university, which justifies its existence, and yes, the university exists to transmit traditions and knowledge, but mainly to get at the truth. And that requires honest debate, which requires patience, intellectual honesty, investigation, and a lot of hard work. But it also is not for the faint of heart. And that is a lesson that is almost never transmitted today. That offense, bruising thoughts, and unpleasant facts simply go with the territory they are intrinsic feature of an open society, and they never can be entirely avoided. Apropos, I find that in the classroom, we would all benefit from some basic rules of the roads. And I myself impose these guidelines in my seminars and in my upper level classes. So what are they? First, and this is not a free speech zone, so I don't claim that, in fact, quite the opposite. No one can be heard to say, quote, I'm offended. They all have permission to be offended, but they just can't express it. <laughs> Second, no one is allowed to accuse anyone else in the classroom or out, dead or alive, of being racist, 
sexist, xenophobic, white supremacist, or to use any other derisive identity-based label. No slaves slurs are name-calling. These don't enlighten, educate, or edify. They add nothing. Give us an argument. Tell us why the other person is wrong. Finally, no one can complain to administrators, those officious thought police, about anything said in class. The question is whether there is any hope of such protocols being implemented on a wide scale. Well, in the current climate, I doubt it. Finally, I think that both the government and private donors need to rethink the lavish financial support for higher education, and especially for elite and selective institutions, which serve only a teeny tiny portion of our population, and which in many ways, I'm afraid, have become an anti-Western and anti-American liability. How can we get the rich to see that supporting elite universities today may not be the wisest and most fruitful use of their hard-earned money. What we need is a list of alternative causes and alternative institutions and goals for their money that help ordinary average unspecial people who have been unduly neglected by our elites and are increasingly walled off from them, as Charles Murray has pointed out. So what are some of the items on that list? Supporting vocational education, providing grants for job training, funding local infrastructure improvement, cleaning up and beautifying public spaces, establishing K through 12 art and music programs, paying relocation costs of ordinary workers, paying for regional theaters, paying for their dental care, which they often can't afford. The list goes on and on. Where are the scions of Silicon Valley or the wealthy titans of Wall Street thinking about ways to help the average worker? That is what's important. Finally, we should strive to return to an older conception of equality that enshrines opportunity and personal responsibility. Andrew Sullivan, in a recent blog post, puts it well. Liberalism, he says, has never promised equality of outcomes, merely equality of rights. It is a procedural philosophy rooted in means, not a substantive one justified by achieving certain ends. In academia today, that form of liberalism is on life support. It is virtually extinct. In its place is a utopian egalitarian fantasy that depends on denial and the banishment of those who dare to notice reality. Maintaining that fantasy has to rest on force, not reason, both private and public force. It is antithetical to our way of life and must be resisted by all people of goodwill. So I invite you all to join the resistance. Thank you. <laughs> Have some time for discussion. Has any legal action been taken by you? or on your behalf claiming that whatever Penn did or threatened to do violates A, your tenure, B, whatever your, I don't know what the terms of a Penn professor's uh, contract is, but is there any protection in there and can you sue anybody for breach of that contract? Well, I have discussed that with actually, there was one very brave uh, trustee and very big donor to Penn Law who has stood up for me uh, staunchly and consistently. His name is Paul Levy, and he's just a terrific guy and a very clear thinker, and he has suggested that I do that. Um, I have looked into it. One thing I could do is, is sue for defamation, uh, which, you know, given the uh, email that my dean sent, which just rankly contradicts itself, uh, I think it would be fairly easy to, to prove that he has damaged my reputation and he has damaged it with false statements. I mean, I'm very confident that the, what I said about performance of black students is 
in fact true. So I could sue for defamation. Defamation in Pennsylvania has a one-year statute of limitations, so I would have to do it um, by March. But then there are a lot of drawbacks. I won't go into the details. There, there are a lot of. Um, I would have to do it in state court, and that's you know an incredible wild card in Pennsylvania. I won't elaborate. Um, what's interesting is. People did call for firing me, but my colleagues blanch at the idea of stripping me of tenure because even the ones who are staunchly opposed to me on every level and think that I am utterly, totally a deplorable and, you know, first cousin to Satan, they don't want to strip me of tenure because they value their tenure. Uh, and they don't want to see the standards for tenure diluted. So that, oddly enough, kind of protects me. I am not going to be fired. Uh, and indeed, I demanded to meet with the dean. He so didn't want to meet with me that when I asked to be relieved of some teaching duties this year with no consequences for pay and benefits, he immediately wrote back and said, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> my daughter, who's at Wharton, says, Ma, you've got you've to do the same deal next year. Uh, they <laughs> yeah. I know that many lawyers don't like to comment on pending and actual cases, but could we hear your opinion on the Harvard Asian students controversy that's in trial right now? Yeah, I'm actually... Uh relatively pessimistic about the Asian students winning. I mean, I'm not saying they won't ultimately win, and I can, in a moment, I'll tell you how they could, but the problem is, if you go back to the Grutter case, which is the University of Michigan case that, you know, is the, the sort of guiding light here uh, in, the, in the 90s, it really, Justice O'Connor's opinion hands these universities pretty much a blank check to do what they want uh, to achieve this compelling goal of diversity and is so deferential. And of course, Justice Scalia was scathing about that, you know, said, why, why are we deferring to these educrats? They're just making this stuff up. Um, but Kennedy wrote a fairly hard-lying uh, opinion in that case where he said, no, we need to hold these institutions' feet to the fire. If they say that diversity is pedagogically beneficial, they need to specify exactly how it advances learning. They need to measure it. They need to demonstrate it. Well, the courts have not demanded that that be done, right? The court could, the Supreme Court could take that seriously, put some teeth in it and say, it's one thing to say how wonderful this is. It's another thing to actually show it. And that might be a way that the Asians could win. There's a scenario um, that, in your view, would be a good outcome from minority What do you think? <clears throat> well, <laughs> there would be, you know, what is affirmative action really about when you think about it? It's about the continuing gaps in academic achievement between African Americans and, and to a lesser extent, Hispanics and other groups. Because, you know, there are, our society is now very diverse and everybody else is more or less doing okay. Uh, but blacks continue to lag academically. So what would happen is if it really was race blind, there would be significantly fewer blacks at very competitive elite universities, which have become ironically more competitive, more elite, harder to get into, and all of that. And initially it might be somewhat disturbing, but I think in the long run it would be very beneficial. So I have a number of relatives in academic medicine, and you know the stories they tell about the degree of affirmative action that is going on in medical schools, which is an open secret. Uh, any honest person uh, is going to be dismayed by it. It's, 
it inevitably has to affect the way they look at black doctors. It just does. I, I, I mean, I think many people are just going to wonder, you know, is this person the recipient of deep affirmative action or are they really qualified? Well, I wouldn't want to be the member of a group where that is being wondered about me. Um, and I think the same for women, right? Uh, I think women, the notion that women are going to be equally represented in every profession, in every sector, in every uh, occupational area, I just think is wildly unrealistic. Uh, you know, let the chips fall and, and then everybody can be fairly confident that anybody who is there is there because of what they know and what they've done and not, you know, because of some project of social engineering. I think at the end of the day, that's pernicious. Hi, I wanted to say thank you for what you, the point that you brought up about that it creates more sensitivities. As a person with a, dis a lifelong disability, um, my mother looked at me when I started first grade and she said, okay, we're going to school now. It wasn't, now don't feel bad and don't feel embarrassed. I, and I decided I wanted to quit. And she informed me that was not an option, that it did not matter what my packaging was, that I was going to go and use the brain that God had given me or stay home and eat bonbons for the rest of my life that she was not going to supply. I was ready for school the next day on time. But I think that you've brought up a really interesting point because I see it all the time in mentoring young people with disabilities who are given big parameters when they, when they start middle school and high school and then those, those um, accommodations continue in college of given, being given extra time or things like that when it's not legitimately necessary. How do we work? I, I left the teaching field because of this very thing, because I was so frustrated with the, the accommodations and the, the um, affirmative action moves that were being given. And they said, well, how you're a person with a disability and you don't think other people with disabilities should be given special treatment. I said, no, I think we should all be treated on our merit, rewarded on our merit, the things that we earn and forget the packaging. But how do we work to make this change so that we do not have these people coming out of academic situations who can't function in the workplace because they've never failed. Well, I mean, you know, you're asking me how can we affect a cultural revolution, Absolutely. which has been long in the making. Uh, and I guess what I tell people, um, you know, I, I often tell my students there's nothing wrong with being a reactionary. You know, that term has acquired negative connotations. Uh, but I don't see why, because uh, the past is a wonderful guide to, um, you know, the present sometimes. And that doesn't mean there weren't bad things in the past. I think there were. But finding that sweet spot, right, where you exactly. do try to accommodate disabled people to enable them to function, but don't tempt them constantly to take advantage of of the system and game the system, it's it's very, very hard to do. Uh, but it's more a matter of an attitude. You know, the attitude, uh, a kind of old-fashioned attitude. Actually, Charles Krauthammer, who recently died, exemplifies that attitude, right? I'm just going to live my life and not going to deny my limitations, but I'm going to not focus on them. Um, I have a sister who's deaf, uh, and she has very much that attitude. I call it, you know, life as we know it. it this, is, this is our life. We're going to live it to the best of our abilities, and we're not going to talk all the time about our disability because there's so many more interesting things to, to think about and to do. But how do you instill that attitude? I mean, it's a matter of upbringing. It's a matter of outlook. It's a matter of the zeitgeist. Uh, and well, right. The zeitgeist has turned against that. Yeah. Uh, absolutely decisively it has. It's, it's a culture of complaint. Just people are constantly complaining about everything. And there's a loss of piety. There's a loss of gratitude. Uh, I cringe every time women dump on, on men, you know, because I say, well, would you like to do without all the stuff that men have created and that men have invented? I don't think so. 
stop. I don't get make myself popular by saying that. Yeah. <laughs> Say the the recent dust up over your comments in promotion of bourgeois values, I find really remarkable. Having spent a lot of time on Penn's campus, and there's an image of Benjamin Franklin, like the original, uh, you know, proponent of bourgeois values. Everywhere you look on campus, has anybody at Penn have you run into anybody who 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 understands that irony? Well, that's also one of the problems is, you know, the total loss of any sense of irony or sense of humor. I mean, it is so bizarre that these elite professors who have crossed every T, dotted every I, you know, who have never, you know, have, have the golden resumes, have never done anything wrong, are attacking bourgeois values. I don't know where to start. You know, I just don't know where to begin. How do you, how do you enter into the bizarre you know, hall of mirrors that is that mindset. Um, I did it with by trying to ask this hypothetical, right? Would you rather live with people who exemplify these values or people who flout them constantly? And, and it was you know, what Jonathan Haidt calls moral dumbfounding. I won't answer that. Uh. I was just curious as to, you, you spoke about a lot of different areas of civil society and how this seems to be permeating more and more aspects. As you said, it's, it seems to be a zeitgeist. And uh, I guess, what are your thoughts as to the place of the university in that? Uh, mm. is, it, yeah. is it just you know the most radical? Is it the engine or is it just ephemeral and part of this broader cultural phenomenon? Yeah, it's very much an engine um, because what the university, first of all, more and more people are going to college. So the person who, you know, Charles Murray is, is ahead of the curve on everything. He's a brilliant demographer, and he points out in Coming Apart that um, there has been this kind of snowballing effect of the dominance of educated elites and, and going along with their separation, because instead of 5% of the population going to college and being shaped and formed by the attitudes there, we now have 20, 25% of the population is now getting a four-year degree, is succeeding in, in completing a four-year degree. And that's been pretty flat for a while, but now we have this critical mass. And all of these people are being inculcated and indoctrinated uh, in this progressive mindset, I mean, you take your kind of average above average 17-year-old, I mean, they don't know anything. They're not very sophisticated. They go to these universities. They hear this barrage of stuff. They never hear a different point of view. Um, they read the New York Times, heaven help us, right? Uh, and and it has become moralized. It has now become a mark of, of being elite, being hip, being you know sophisticated, being a good person. I mean, it's it's just metastasized into um, this folkway or this this set of norms and and values that you know mean that you're one of us. Uh, so I don't, I think the university is, is vastly influential in propagating these ideas. And of course, these people, the people who go to selective universities, which is still only a minority of the population. I think I read somewhere that, you know, like only 10% of students go to universities that accept less than 50% of their applicants. It's really the the universities that we all are familiar with is, is still a niche phenomenon. These people have outsized influence in society. This is also one of the reasons why there aren't any reforms. And I'll finish what I, what I call the little Caitlin problem, which is you know all the people associated with these universities, the alums, the trustees, the donors, they want their kids to get into these places and get out of these places so that they can go take their job at Goldman Sachs or wherever. And, you know, how do you, what do you do about that? That's an enormous amount of monopoly power over public opinion and over, you know, the uh, arenas of influence. So I don't know what to do about it.
Uh, you've said that your job is safe, your tenure is safe. Can you talk about some of the ways that schools can try to drive faculty out or make them shut up short of actually going after that, ways that will kind of make them so miserable they just want to give up or be quiet? Well, they certainly do a good job of trying to make you miserable. I mean, I have been you know, completely ostracized uh, by my fellow faculty members. But anyway, apart from that, tenure is a privilege of only a, a minority of people who teach at universities. I mean, you have to get through graduate school, you have to get into graduate school, you have to get through graduate school, you have to get your first job, you have to, you know, go up through the ranks. Um, I mean, you have to jump through a gazillion hoops before you get tenure. And I think what's happening now uh, is that conservatives um, are finding it very hard to get into top graduate schools, to get hired. Uh, to get promoted. Um, the university is structured to perpetuate itself. So that's a big way in which this system continues. Hi, I wonder, so you said that um, a lot of people end up in college and they've been formed, their opinions have been formed by this sort of elite opinion um, that is all made up of people who went to the same 10% of colleges. Um, I wonder if you would speak maybe to K-12, because there's a lot of evidence that um, a large percentage of students go into college, and in fact, their opinions are largely formed. College radicalizes them. It doesn't actually push them left of center. It just radicalizes them and fills them with, fills in sort of the um, ideological content of the instincts they already have. Yeah. No, I am extremely remiss in not putting K-12 through more at the center of this discussion, because every where I go, and I've talked to citizen groups, I've been out in the middle of the country, I hear the same thing. K through 12 is become toxic, it's become pernicious. There is, you know, propaganda from day one about what an evil, racist, horrible society we are, um, you know, how awful white males are, how, how, um, pernicious and genocidal and hideous we are, and, and all this emphasis on the negatives, almost none on the positives, and it starts in kindergarten. Someone told me down in Easton, Maryland, where I talked to a citizen group, that in their school, the kindergartners are asked, what gender, gender would you like to choose? So they actually have a whole lesson about choosing their gender. Well, you know, I don't know, what do you do about that? That's part of the curriculum. Instead of teaching children about, you know, the three branches of government, they're learning about transgenderism. So that's where we are. I recently had a conversation with a senior engineer at the National Aeronautical and Space Administration, NASA, who told me that there is a policy in place at NASA that mandates that 50% of all senior engineers at NASA be women. Well, the guy who told me this said, we looked into it and we found out that only around 20% of the people currently graduating from engineering schools that would uh, propel them in a, in a direction of, of NASA uh, are women. He says, so how are we supposed to fulfill the mandate when we are dealing with the uh, consequences of choices that people made as to what they would study and what they would not? So I would be very interested in hearing your opinion about that. Thank you. Well, I mean, my personal view is that it is ridiculous to have a mandate like that, that people ought to pay attention to these so-called pipeline problems. It's absurd to ask that women be 50% of, of any elite job just on the simple reason that a considerable percentage of women choose to drop out of the workforce entirely. So if you have two pipelines, men and women, and they start out equal, already you're shrinking the pipeline of women for all jobs, you know, sort of lifetime careers by 15 or even 20%. When you tell people that, you say, this is arithmetic, guys. 
This is addition and subtraction. How can you reasonably expect that 50% will be women when 50% of working people are not women through prime age working people? But that is falls on deaf ears, okay? Because the ideology is it is our responsibility to rectify the social conditions that lead to the, the shrinking pipeline or the shrunk pipeline. If women don't become engineers, that's our fault. There's some ether in the air. There's some sexist ether that deters them, that discourages them, uh, that suppresses them. And if we could just dispel that ether, women would be beating down the doors to engineering schools. But that is the ideology. And there is no way into that ideology to refute it because it is self-confirming. Right? Right. Hi, I loved your speech. I am a graduate of Penn, but I already decided that I won't be donating after hearing Professor Ann Norton speak at Georgetown and compare anyone who believed in Islamic terrorism, believed that there was such a thing, and comparing that to persecution of Jews during the Holocaust. So I won't be donating. But my question is, um, <laughs> if you're a parent of a child in high school, and you want them to have a good education, what, what would your advice be? Should they not go to these schools? Should they go and just suck it up and say what the teachers want to hear? Should they go and start trouble and risk themselves? And my second question is, I think there are a lot of donors who really have no clue how bad things have gotten, and that's a, a lot of why they're donating. You can tell them a small fraction of what you've said and they're in disbelief because it sounds so unbelievable. Yeah, well, I agree with you that, you know, there is just this incredible air of unreality in, and, and Penn and places like that control the discourse. They feed information to the donors and alumni, and the donors and alumni are more than happy to listen to the happy talk. You just need to look at any alumni magazine, and you will see an alternative version of reality, right? My fantasy is that Tomorrow we would wake up and no one would give another penny to the Ivy League. Defund the Ivies, really. I'm, that's my new project. Uh, and I'm going to write an article about that. Heather McDonald and I are working on an article called Defund the Ivies, right? Because it's already time already. Enough with the donations to the Ivies. It's a vanity project. In terms of where children should go, that's a tough one. Um, you know, my kids are all 20-somethings. They went to, to Ivy's. Uh, they got an education. I mean, my son is a quite conservative, and he, he certainly got an education uh, in a manner of speaking of what it's like to be a campus conservative. It's not much fun. Because um, it is, you know, that, that prestigious degree, whether we like it or not, it's worth something. Uh, on the other hand, there are alternatives. Uh, I was just out talking at Hillsdale College, which is a wonderful place, um, and doesn't take any federal money. Uh, I don't know the answer, but I would say that we need more centers, sort of safe havens for students who depart from the progressive catechism. So for example, at Yale, the Buckley Center is really terrific. Uh, and a lot of students um, find that the Buckley Center is a supportive environment. Uh, the Madison program at Princeton uh, is also in the same vein. Uh, so I would say, you know, funding these, these programs would probably be a good idea. Well, I was going to ask the last one before we adjourn for the reception. What would you think of the French solution where it's forbidden by law to do any racial or religious classification? So if the data didn't exist and you were not allowed to collect it, I realize it poses First Amendment problems in America, but wouldn't this destroy the whole edifice? Well, maybe. I mean, these... These uh, universities, these institutions are incredibly powerful and clever, and they have all sorts of ways to figure out 
you know, who comes from particular groups. They have all sorts of fancy proxies. I, I just don't know how well it would really work. Um, they would have surrogates and ways to signal and the like. Um, I am one of these people, although I'm a law professor, I honestly think that, you know, law is not availing when you, it comes to these profound cultural shifts, these tectonic shifts. You know, um, there, there is a, an outsized belief in the power of law to, to affect these cultural changes. I'm not, don't happen to be someone who believes that. I, isn't it Goldsmith who said, how small of all that human hearts endure, the part that laws or kings can cause or cure? Well, I kind of, I think that's right. We'll adjourn to the reception area where there's uh, open bar and some hors d'oeuvres, and then Amy will join us if you want to ask her some more questions or talk to us some more. Thank you. <laughs>